Thank you, Carl, for that wonderful children's message once again. I appreciate that he keeps giving those. And I know that uh, Carl's been sending out weekly things to the families as well, the Families of Friends Club, weekly little um, lessons and things. And Kevin and Wendy are also doing things remotely for the youth as well. So we're going to be going to James chapter 2 in just a minute. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or, or something that you have with you, um, I know this is complicated for those that are watching from home on their smartphone, and they also use their Bible on their smartphone. It makes it a little bit complicated, but uh, we're going to go to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Remember, James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And that's one reason why I moved to uh, start talking about preaching on James a few weeks ago, because it just has such practical wisdom, practical advice, and also... Um, Great just proverbial advice about life, which we're going to get into as we continue on James. I recently read a story that applies to the passage which we're going to look at today. This story comes from Rabbi Zacharias's book, Deliver Us From Evil. Deliver Us From Evil. And I believe that story, you know, many of you ref, um, asked me, or a few of you asked me, about the story that I shared last week about... Um, uh, the man who was imprisoned in Vietnam and almost turned on his faith till the, till, till the Lord gave him access to his word through toilet paper. That story, I believe, also came from Rabbi Zacharias' book, Deliver Us From Evil. And I didn't share in the sermon, but uh, the rest of the way that man, um, I think his name was Han Pham, I'm trying to remember now. The way that he escaped Vietnam is just all miraculous as well. So you can see me later if you want to know the rest of that story. But Rabbi Zacharias, is share, uh, Rabbi Zacharias shares another story. He says, one of the greatest masterpieces of music composition, if not the greatest, is the work of George Frederick Handel, simply called Messiah. You ever heard of it? <laughs> right, we've all heard of it probably. Prior to this composition, prior to its composition, Handel had not been successful as a musician. And he had actually retired from much professional activity by the age of 56. Imagine that, not even that successful, retired by the age of 56. Then in a remarkable series of events... A friend presented him with a libretto based on the life of Christ, the entire script of which was Scripture. Handel shut himself in his room on Brook Street in London. In 24 days, 24 days, breathtakingly absorbed in this composition and hardly eating or drinking, Handel completed the work all the way to its orchestration. He was a man in the grip of profound inspiration. Later, as he groped for words to describe what he had experienced, he quotes St. Paul saying, Whether I was in the body or out of my body, when I wrote it, I know not. Handel's servant testified that on one occasion when he walked into the room to plead with him to eat, he saw Handel with tears streaming down his face saying, I did think I did see all heaven before me. In the great God himself. When Messiah was staged in London, as the notes of the Hallelujah Chorus rang out, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, the King of England, drawn irresistibly, stood to his feet, and the audience followed as one. Listen to how one writer sums up the impact of Messiah. Handel personally conducted more than 36 performances of Messiah. 
Many of these concerts were for the benefit of the hurting and the needy. Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan. Another wrote, perhaps the work of no other composer have so, um, I said that wrong, perhaps the works of no other composer have so largely contributed to the relief of human suffering. Still another said, Master, uh, Messiah's music has done more to convince thousands of mankind that there is a God about us than all the theological works ever written. Ravi Zacharias continues, the first performance was a charitable benefit to raise money to free 142 people from debtor's prison. The first performance of Messiah was done to free people who were in prison because they could not pay their debts. Can you believe that? That's what they had back then. They had debtor's prison. I find that story quite amazing. The way Handel, you know, we... Let's say it. God might have led Handel to write, to orchestrate Messiah, all full of Scripture, and in the way it was used to benefit people, the poor and the needy, the way even the King of England stood up, and he shall reign forever and ever about Jesus Christ. You know, as I think about it, though, I, it really should not be amazing. It shouldn't be at all. Jesus was a common man. Jesus was lower class. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Jesus lived in humility. Therefore, Christians should also live in humility and live to benefit the poor and the needy, to help people in need. When Jesus was, uh, was born, the angels went to the shepherds, the common, ordinary people who are actually a little bit lower class themselves. But I fear that in our churches and in our individual lives and in our mindset, everyone is not equal. We all have our favorites. We are all partial to a certain type of person or a certain type of people. I want to see and look at what the scripture says about favoritism. As we talk about this passage, I intend to show you that favoritism is a sin. Actually, James shows that. James chapter 2, it says, favoritism is a sin. Partiality is a sin. It is not right in our churches. It is not right in your Christian life. Showing favoritism means it's showing prejudice. And you are all the church. You may think, what I do on my own time is what I do on my own time. But as a Christian, your whole life is Jesus' time. Paul the Apostle always called himself a servant of Christ, even a slave of Christ. There is no part-time Christianity. You are called to be Christ-like all your life. And you are all a representative of the church all your life. You are all an ambassador, the Bible says, an ambassador of Christ. We are all an ambassador of Christ. So let's get into the scriptures and see that uh, favoritism is wrong, wrong in the church holistically and wrong in our individual lives as well. Let's turn to James 2, 1 through 13, and let's read this passage. James 2, 1 through 13. James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I want to talk about this passage, and it has three parts. The first part is in verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 are a command not to show favoritism. And there's a case study with an example of favoritism. That's verses 1 through 4. The second part is verses 5 through 7. In verses 5 through 7 is a short section consisting of four questions, which James uses to logically challenge a church that the ones they are favoring are slandering the name of Christ. That's verses 5 through 7. The third part is verses 8 through 13, where the consequences of favoritism are shown. So verses 1 through 4, then verses 5 through 7, then verses 8 through 13. So let's begin with verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, James uh, names a sin and gives an example, an illustration of the sin as a case study. Let's look back at those verses. Verses 1 through 4. I'm going to reread verse 1 and then we'll talk about these verses. My brethren, notice how he lovingly calls them brethren. My brethren, do not, we've got a command here, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Notice, if you look at this, James is quite straightforward. Don't show favoritism, period. Don't have an attitude of personal favoritism, period. No discussion. This is the ruling. What is favoritism? Well, I think the case study in the next few verses helps us understand that. Let's look at the case study in verses 2 through, uh, two through, two through 4. Verse 2 starts with suppose. This means that this is a case study. This, this may or may not be actually happening. Though, by the way, we can read in between the lines a little bit and maybe get an indication of some things that may be going on in the church at Jerusalem. Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and James was pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that James was stoned to death as a Jewish heretic in AD 62. So eventually, he died for his faith in his brother, Jesus. But if you uh, read about James, by the way, this is all a little extra detail. If you read about him, James did not believe in his brother when he was uh, before Jesus was crucified. James was a convert after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And it seems as though the church in Jerusalem, well, we know, faced a lot of persecution. And as you read into this, it seems like this is a, a struggle that they're having. Favoritism. So he says, suppose... Suppose, so suppose that someone comes into the church meeting wearing a gold ring. A gold ring would be a sign of wealth. While Jews commonly wore rings, few could afford gold rings. 
And there are some reports that in the ancient world, the most ostentatious people wore rings on every finger. Every finger but the middle one to show off their economic status. Some ancient sources indicate there were even ring rental businesses. Imagine that, ring rental businesses. So needless to say, this gold ring is a clue to the case study, in the case study, that this man is a wealthy man. He comes in with a gold ring. And this is just the illustration, the case study that James gives. James' instruction is not simply against favoring the rich over the poor, but favoring favoritism is wrong in all cases. In this, state, this case study, as I've already said, gives clues to things that were going on in the church. This man is also wearing fine clothes. He comes in, he's got his gold ring, he's got some fine clothes on. And then there's a man that comes in not dressed as nice. There's a man that comes in, he's a poor man in shabby clothes. The next few verses, the next few verses show that the rich man gets the best seat. While the poor man is told to sit on the floor, just stand. Now before I go on, let's pause to really think about this. And let's, let's apply this, let's apply this. So you may be thinking, um, this doesn't happen in our church. In this church, everyone is treated equally, regardless of pay. Okay, maybe they are. What about in your individual life, though? Remember, you are all part of the church. Every Christian is part of the church. How are you doing in your individual life? Do you treat people differently based off of uh, height, weight, looks? Do you treat people differently based off of the color of their skin? I got another one for you. Do you treat people differently based off of how they dress? Maybe there's a man or woman who is quite educated and wealthy, but if, if you're around them, they don't, they don't appear that way at all. Would you treat them the same way? Do you treat people differently based off of occupation? All of my prodding has so far had to do with actions, how you treat people. Let's prod a little bit deeper. What types of thoughts go through your head? Are you, as you see someone at work, at church, at a game, do you make a judgment of how you would treat them? Based off of dress, talk, language, skin color, weight, height, the music they're listening to, sports teams. Chuck Swindoll tells a self-deprecating story. I heard him share it when he was preaching. I still lived in Cincinnati, and as soon as I heard it, I thought, wow. He says, several years ago, he was teaching at a Bible conference. During one of the first days, he was eating a meal, and he met a couple. The woman seemed really nice and talkative. The husband seemed quiet and somewhat shy. They were sitting at Swindoll's table and they got, he said, table acquainted. Later on, as Swindoll taught, he preached, he noticed a man would fall asleep. He noticed this didn't happen just once but several times. Chuck Swindoll said that he had it figured out. He had it figured out in his own head. And it's humble of him to share this story. In his own mind, he says, he thought the woman has a husband who is not as devoted to the study of Scripture as she is. He simply came to the conference to please her. On the last day, the wife asked if she could speak to Swindoll after the conference was over. Chuck Swindoll said yes. He knew what she was going to talk about, or so he thought. He thought that she wanted to tell him that she really wanted to attend this, but her husband is just not as devoted to the spiritual. 
That's what he thought. That's what he thought in his own mind. She waited till everyone had left, and then she said, My husband is not here today. He feels bad. Uh, she waited. Wait, I lost my spot. There we go. He feels bad. She said he feels bad that he falls asleep. He is dying of cancer. One of his wishes was to come here you speak, as you are his favorite Bible teacher. Chuck Spindall said he was convicted. His point was that we cannot judge. We do not know all the facts. You see, his case was not necessarily a matter of favoritism, but he did show, he, he, he did see how this dying man presented himself, and he made a judgment based off of how this man presented himself, falling asleep in the messages. He made a judgment, and we must never do that, never. But I admit I do it too. We all may do it, right? But judgment is favoritism, and we should not do that. When we make a judgment, favoritism, being prejudiced starts in the mind. Being prejudiced starts in the mind. Then it becomes meditation. Then it becomes action of favoring one over another, and that's always wrong. And James is continuing to make his case here. He gets a little more specific in the next few verses. Let's continue these next few verses. In James 2, 5 through 7, there are specifics to the people. James communicates through questions to make the case that the people are... Fa- the, he makes a case that the people they are favoring are slandering the name of Christ. The people they are favoring are slandering the name of Christ. I'm going to reread verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Notice that's some insight into the background of what's going on in the church of Jerusalem. Verse 7, he says, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? He's saying in that case, in their case, the rich are even blaspheming the name of Jesus. The text says, Do they not blaspheme the noble or fair name by whom you are called? They are favoring the ones who are slandering Jesus' name. James says they have become judges with these thoughts. They have discriminated. These next few verses are specific to the people. The next few verses give questions, and the questions have implied positive answers. The questions have implied answers as yes. Yes, they have discriminated amongst themselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Yes, God has chosen the poor in this world. Notice that? God has chosen the poor in this world. What does that mean? It means that generally, not always, but generally, Christianity is an underdog religion. That doesn't mean all Christians should be Browns fans, okay? Just get that out of the way. I haven't made a reference to that in a long time. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following, it shows that Christianity is foolishness to the world, especially in the first century. Certainly throughout church history, we've had many, many, many high-up intellectuals and wealthy people who are Christians, and God has used them in their ministry in great and awesome ways. Especially in the first century, Christianity was an underdog religion. It was humiliating to be crucified. To think that our Savior was crucified, that's a big deal. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But James continues, yes, the rich were dragging them into court. Yes, the rich are slandering the name of Jesus. James even says, by the way, that they favor the rich, they are insulting the poor. By the way, they are favoring the rich, they are even insulting the poor, common people. 
We're not called to treat people differently based off of occupation, financial status, or anything else. The application is don't show favoritism. All types of favoritism, all types of judgment like that are wrong. The next few verses deal with the consequences of showing partiality. Let's reread James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says the royal law. This just means it is the most important law. Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, and we all know what he said. is in Matthew 22, 37 and following. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of the other commandments are summarized by this. So James is saying if you are truly loving your neighbor, you are doing good. But if you show favoritism, you're breaking the law. James is saying you break one law, you've broken them all. So you may say, I haven't committed idolatry. I've I've done good there. I haven't committed idolatry. And then you say, I haven't taken the name of the Lord in vain. Done good there. Then you say, I haven't broken the Sabbath. Done good there. I'm honoring my father and my mother. Doing good there. I haven't murdered. Doing good there. I haven't stolen. Doing good there. Oh, no, but I've told a lie. That means James is saying you've broken the whole law. Just as one, you know, think of it, if a piece of glass is broken, the whole glass is broken, right? I mean, if a baseball goes up and hits a second floor window, and maybe it just cracks it, the whole window is broken, the whole window needs replaced. And that's an example of the law. Now, don't take this too far. James's point is we all need a savior. We all need a savior. You break one part of the law, you need a savior. You need Jesus to cover your sins. It doesn't really mean, sometimes we take this passage to say that a sin is a sin and all sins are equal. That's not really true. There's passages in scripture where Jesus said, the people who handed me over to you are guilty of the greater sin. That's not really, it's not really true. But no matter, but one sin separates us from God. No matter what that sin is. A white lie separates us from God because God is holy. God is holy. So James says, act as though you are judged by the law that gives freedom. Christianity brings freedom. Jesus has saved us from having to scruple about which laws we have have or haven't broken. However, Jesus allows us to press forward. Jesus allows us to pursue holiness and godliness and righteousness. And we do that through the Holy Spirit who is within us. The law of Christ provides freedom from sin through the gospel. When we give mercy, we prove we are Christians, which means that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. You hear that? When we give mercy, we prove that we are Christians, which means that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. So Handel, he wrote the Messiah. And regardless of race, regardless of wealth, he took his performances specifically to the people in need. Handel's Messiah was full of scripture, and it, and it was life to the people who are marginalized by society. It gave life to the marginalized. 
Handel did something that was countercultural. You realize that? He did something that was countercultural. Praise God for that. Handel lived out one of my favorite verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Consider others more important than yourselves. And look out for the needs of others before your own. Do we do that? Do we consider others more important than ourselves? Do we look out for the needs of others before our own? Do we rebuke any thought in our mind of favoritism or prejudice or pride? That's where it starts. And when we notice those thoughts, we need to pray and say, Lord, oh, forgive me, that was wrong. When we intentionally live out Philippians 2, 3 through 4, looking out for the needs of others first, considering others more important than ourselves, when we intentionally live that out, we eliminate favoritism from our churches. We eliminate favoritism from our own life. And that's the application of Philippians 2, 3 through 4. But, you know, James did talk about you break one law, you need a Savior. And let me ask you, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, anyone can come after me. It's open to anyone. There's no favoritism with the gospel. No matter what tribe or tongue or culture your background's from, no matter if you're rich or poor, anyone can come to Jesus. But Jesus says you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, wherever we're at, whether here or at home. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The Bible can be summed up with the acronym that spells gospel. God created us to be with him. We see that in Genesis 1 through 2. God wants a relationship with us, but our sins, they separate us from God. We see that in Genesis 3. God is holy and righteous and perfectly pure, so those sins separate us from him. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. We see that in the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis 4 through Malachi 4. That creates a dilemma because God wants a relationship with us. So God took action. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again, the Gospels. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life, the New Testament. Life that's eternal means being with Jesus forever, Revelation 22.5. What does it mean to commit to Christ? It means that we firmly make the decision to be with him. You want to live life with Jesus, be a follower of him. In order to become like him, to learn and do all that he says, then arrange your affairs around him. Have you done that? Have you committed your life to Jesus? Some of you might have believed in him years ago, but you're not making him Lord of your life. You're not really a follower of Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus today. If you'd like to commit your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, or rededicate your life to him. Maybe you, you were committed to him, but you backslid and you've fallen away. If you'd like to rededicate your life to him, or commit your life to Jesus, I invite you to say this prayer with me. Say it at home, say it wherever you're at. You're not saved by the prayer, you're saved by what's in your heart. But say this prayer with me. It's telling God what you're doing. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm committing my life to you. I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I am firmly making the decision to be with you. In order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say, and I am arranging my affairs around you. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you said that prayer, share it with somebody today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. God wants a relationship with all of us, and it's free. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. Even if you're a non-believer, an atheist, an agnostic, but a deist, I don't care. 
talk to me. I'm not going to give you judgment. I would just love to talk to you about the Christian faith. I'm going to invite Steve to lead the closing hymn and the closing prayer now. Amen. Actually, the closing uh, hymn is uh, 635.